This is the Living Prophets Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. Episode 60, March 2020, and a lot has happened in the world at the time of this recording this week, with a COVID-19 pandemic striking the earth. And I thought that even though I usually go to sermons, this episode I would focus on inspiring visionary speeches from people who have helped large swaths of humanity steer in the right direction. And so I'm going to read a speech that was posted on Twitter this week by Jeremy Dyke, who was an analyst at a think tank called the Center for Global Development. And this is the speech that the people of the United States needed to hear, but it was not given. So imagine if we had a president And this is how he spoke to the country this week. My fellow Americans, the next few months are going to be hard. For many of us, harder than anything we've faced in our lifetimes. Life in our country is about to change. We must unify against this threat like we unified after 9-11. And indeed, this virus threatens to kill more Americans than terrorism ever has. But we can defeat it. And we will defeat it. My administration has a plan to lead this fight. I will outline that plan in a moment. But more important than the plan is this. We must all own this fight. Defeating this outbreak will take science and medicine, but it will also take unity and partnership from every one of us. For now, medicine cannot defeat this disease. But people can. We have no vaccine, we have no treatment, although we are working furiously to develop both. Until then, what we have is us. Our choices, our decisions, our behavior. That is how we will do this. Here's the plan. Our most important priority over the coming months is to protect our highest risk citizens and the hospitals that will work to save them if they become ill. We have seen what happened in Wuhan and is happening in Iran and Italy. We should not imagine that it cannot happen here. Make no mistake, this is a dangerous disease. While most who contract it become only mildly ill, it is extremely deadly for the elderly and people with chronic health problems. You may be one of those people, or you may love one of those people. All of us have a stake in this. That's why tonight I'm announcing policies of social distancing, and tomorrow I'll speak with every governor in the country to secure their commitment and implement this guidance. This must be a whole of society effort. We don't want to lock down our population as China did, but to avoid that we must apply universal and aggressive public measures to slow the spread. That's what it means to flatten the curve. Even if you are young and low risk, you could still contract and spread it as a vector, and that threatens those who are at high risk. So I'm calling on all communities to suspend all mass gatherings of over 50 people. I applaud the brave and difficult decisions made today by the NCAA and NBA. They are leading by example. I call on other businesses and civic leaders to follow them. These important measures are how we can protect our health system. We must ensure that those who fall sick can get the care they need and survive. Aggressive social distancing is going to work. Reducing the number of people who are sick at once is the best way to keep our health system from being overwhelmed. I urge 
Americans to take ownership. We must ensure the nation's hospitals have the resources they need. I'm also directing the military to make doctors available to expand critical care around the country. I'm directing the Army Corps of Engineers to help hospitals expand their intensive care facilities as we need them. And if we're testing, I have to apologize that we bungled this badly, but we're moving in the right direction. If you need to be tested, rest assured, it will be available and it will be free of charge to everyone who needs it. This will be a long fight, but we must prevail, and we will prevail. I commit to you that I and everyone in the federal government will do our part, and we call on you to do yours. I invite you to compare the text of a recent inaugural address with these words that were proclaimed in the midst of a period of scarcity, in the midst of the Great Depression, the second inaugural address of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who addressed the nation and said this, in this nation I see tens of millions of its citizens, a substantial part of its whole population, who are at this very moment denied the greater part of what the very lowest standards of today call the necessities of life. I see millions of families trying to live on income so meager that the pall of family disaster hangs over them day by day. I see millions whose daily lives in city and on farm continue under conditions labeled indecent by so-called polite society half a century ago. I see millions denied education, recreation, and the opportunity to better their lot and the lot of their children. I see millions lacking the means to buy the products of farm and factory and by their poverty denying work and productiveness to many other millions. I see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. It is not in despair that I paint you that picture. I paint it for you in hope, because the nation seeing and understanding the injustice in it proposes to paint it out. We are determined to make every American citizen the subject of this country's interest and concern, and we will never regard any faithful law-abiding group within our borders as superfluous. The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. That was the nature of public discourse at a moment, at a moment when self-interest could have been elevated, at a moment when suspicion could have bred greater division and even civil war. Bread and justice, our sisters and brothers in Central and South America remind us, are deeply connected. But it is a lesson, it is a lesson that is being silenced in this nation. It is a lesson that is not part of our public discourse. And I fear that we are, we are being squeezed into a mold, a mold that says, be fearful, look out for yourselves, 
And the church, as much as any other place, is drinking in that fear. We are schooled to be fearful. There's not going to be enough for you. Take care of yourself. Privatize this. You see, it's so easy for us in saying, well, look, the, the problems are so massive, I can't take care of it all. And that's right. I can't solve it all. And that's right. But the wrong answer is, so I'll take care of more for myself. That's what we're being taught. That's the policies we are passing right now as a nation. It's too massive out there, so make sure you've got enough for yourself. In the middle of the depression, those of us said, no, we're going to go another direction. And we will consider no progress made. Unless we can look at the most vulnerable members of our society and see that progress is occurring for them. For only then will we break the cycles of violence that grow out of hunger and fear. You see, the, the ludicrous thing that we do cannot be sold. There will be joy and grief. Live it all. The ludicrous things we do that are always too little. These five loaves and two fishes. This meal at the park. It's always too little. It's not enough. And yet it gets magnified somehow when we do our Lord's bidding. But watch it when that new world opens up. Because you're going to find you're going to be seduced in doing it again. And doing it again. Because you're going to find out that this is where life is. This is where the kingdom is. This is what our sisters and brothers are telling us. Saying, please, please don't buy into the publicity. Please don't buy into the press releases we're hearing coming out of your nation right now. Please come back and read the Gospels. They're pleading for our souls. Will their prayers for us be answered? Another visionary speech was given by President Kennedy in the early 1960s at Rice University, where he announced that America was going to put a man on the moon. This speech is much like the FDR speech that preceded it in setting a tone that painted our aspirations as something about advancing knowledge and bringing peace to all humankind, and not just about nationalism or patriotism. And while many people frame this as an attempt to beat the Russians, even Kennedy himself later it was found, internally was fighting with his own party and with the Republicans to make this about humanity. He wanted to collaborate with the Russians to achieve this goal as a way of bridging the divide that was created during the early Cold War era. For well, we meet in an hour of change and challenge, in a decade of hope and fear, in an age of both knowledge and ignorance. The greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. Despite the striking fact that most of the scientists that the world has ever known are alive and working today, despite the fact that this nation's own scientific manpower is doubling every 12 years in a rate of growth more than three times that 
of our population as a whole. Despite that, the vast stretches of the unknown and the unanswered and the unfinished still far outstrip our collective comprehension. No man can fully grasp how far and how fast we have come. But condense, if you will, the 50,000 years of man's recorded history in a time span of but a half a century. Stated in these terms, we know very little about the first 40 years, except at the end of them, advanced man had learned to use the skins of animals to cover them. Then about 10 years ago, under this standard, man emerged from his caves to construct other kinds of shelter. Only five years ago, man learned to write and use a cart with wheels. Christianity began less than two years ago. The printing press came this year. And then less than two months ago, during this whole 50-year span of human history, the steam engine, Newton explored the meaning of gravity. Only last week did we develop penicillin and television and nuclear power. And now, if America's new spacecraft succeeds in reaching Venus, we will have literally reached the stars before midnight tonight. This is a breathtaking pace. And such a pace cannot help but create new ills as it dispels old. New ignorance, new problems, new dangers. Surely the opening vistas of space promise high costs and hardships, as well as high reward. So it is not surprising that some would have us stay where we are a little longer, to rest, to wait. This country of the United States was not built by those who waited and rested and wished to look behind them. If this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. The exploration of space will go ahead, whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the great adventures of all time. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolution, the first waves of modern invention, and the first wave of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it. And we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, 
but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. Yet the vows of this nation can only be fulfilled if we in this nation are first, and therefore we intend to be first. In short, our obligations to ourselves, as well as others, all require us to make this effort, to solve these mysteries, to solve them for the good of all men, and to become the world's leading spacefaring nation. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained for the progress of all people, for space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man. And only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help decide whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a new terrifying theater of war. Its conquest deserves the best of all mankind, and its opportunity for peaceful cooperation may never come again. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. The growth of our science and education will be enriched by new knowledge of our universe and environment, by new techniques of learning and mapping and observation, by new tools and computers for industry, medicine, and the home, as well as the school, Technical institutions such as Rice will reap the harvest of these gains. And finally, the space effort itself, while still in its infancy, has already created a great number of new companies and tens and thousands of new jobs. For we have given this program a high national priority, even though I realize that this is, in some measure, an act of faith and vision. For we do not now know what benefits await us. But if I were to say, my fellow citizens, that we shall send to the moon 240,000 miles away a giant rocket more than 300 feet tall, the length of this football field, made of new metal alloys, some of which have not yet been invented, capable of standing heat and stresses, several times more than have ever been experienced, fitted together with a precision better than the finest watch, carrying all the equipment needed for propulsion, guidance, control, communications, food, and survival, 
on an untried mission to an unknown celestial body and then return it safely to Earth, re-entering the atmosphere at speeds of over 25,000 miles per hour, causing heat about half that on the temperature of the sun, almost as hot as it is here today, and do all this, and do all this and do it right, and do it first before this dictator's out, then we must be bold. Many years ago, the great British explorer, George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it? He said, because it is there. Well, space is there, and we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. We all have the capacity for great things, but it falls on our leaders to give us a vision and a roadmap and a reason to take that first step. We can't all live on Walden Pond because the world is too fragile for us to not be more interconnected. I hope that these examples of great speeches will get you through the weeks coming during the pandemic and hopefully beyond. This is the Living Prophets Podcast. Thank you for listening. I'll try to make these more often as we are all in quarantine around the world. Please share this with your friends and consider looking at some of my older episodes as an alternative if your church services are being canceled these days. Music in this episode was provided by Cloud Cult and Hans Zimmer. Please like us on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps others find it. Thank you. thirst and it's a hunger for the universe